Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. We got some news coming out of Europe this morning. Germany lines up $600 billion for virus aid. And also the European Union is backing stimulus. So we're starting to get some movement coming out of the Western Europe. We had, of course, the U.S. Federal Reserve uh, immediately expanded the repo offering this week by $1.5 trillion. So starting to get some movement there. To get a sense of what this means, we'll ask uh, Steve Blitz, chief U.S. economist for T.S. Lombard. He joins us on the phone. Steve, thanks so much for joining us. Give us a sure. sense of kind of how you feel the response has bid from the Fed. We had that emergency rate cut. Uh, we had them coming in, injecting some liquidity here this week. How do you think the Fed is kind of handling this a crisis here? Well, I think they're doing the best they can, obviously. Um, I think the hard thing is that I think you have to go back to point one, which is that this is not a financially driven sell-off, right? So this was a non-financial event. Uh, that created this sell-off. And as such, the Fed doesn't have a misguided policy to walk back, right, as they did, <clears throat> sorry, about a year ago. So it is, um, so they, they don't have anything to unwind here that they did wrong. Uh, so that puts them a little at, at, at sea in terms of what's the right move. So one, Habit says cut the funds rate, cut the funds rate, cut the funds rate, and that's the habit both of the market as well as the Fed, and they'll cut 75 and we'll be at 25 basis points uh, after the FOMC meeting on Wednesday. The I think the more interesting thing that's going on was their move yesterday. Because in this move, you would expect Treasury yields to go down, which they have a lot. Uh, but the selling that's occurred and the widening credit spread that we're seeing, it's basically the old LIBOR three-month bill spread that's widening out, tells you that there's stress in the system, which isn't that unusual if you think about this rapid and this much of a drop in the equity market to create that people have made bad bets. I mean, at, at the very, you know, ABC part of it, uh, and people make bad bets, and now they have to, they need cash to cover it, uh, and so there's a scramble for cash. So you sell treasuries, you go to the banks, you try to draw cash from the banks, and I think that's what uh, that's what's going on right now. Steve, this is a really important point because we have, on one hand, an economic shock, an economic potentially crisis developing as a result of the slowdown uh, that's been forced on the whole world, frankly, because of the coronavirus. But then you have the financial shock that you're starting to see the stresses in this in the system. How much do you think the financial shock and the financial crisis was alleviated or prevented enough to just sort of focus on the economic at this point? Or do we have more to go on the economic? Oh, uh, oh I, 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 it's a great question, and I would say we have more to go because I think that what we, we, we can now begin, I think, looking at China coming back, and, and I think you can sort of now model out, you know, probably in six weeks the NBA will be back playing. You know, it's just a guess, obviously. Um, and things will come back. So there's this quick economic contraction that will then of that that, that that's going to come back. 
But Wait, Steve, before you continue, I just want to bring you some breaking news. The New York Federal Reserve uh, announcing that today they will be buying Treasury securities of up to 30 years, a bona fide QE4, QE5, whatever number you want to put on this. Uh, but after the uh, the program that they opened up yesterday, the repo operations, the expanded ones that they're, oper- that they're offering, which were really aimed at uh, alleviating funding pressures and systematic issues, this is, this is outright QE, it sounds like. We will bring you more details. As we get them, but carry on. Yeah, okay, so let's just pick up that. Okay, so what's happening here, and this is, I think, a very important point to understand. They're not, the old QE was let's flatten the curve, let's get 10 year yields even lower to stimulate, you know, borrowing, you know, mortgages, things like that. What they're doing is they're saying, you know what, there's financial pressure, there's a lot of people out there, and by people, I don't necessarily mean individuals, just people as institutions as well. Uh, domestic and foreign that need to raise cash. And the thing you sell when you need to raise cash is treasuries. And what the and what the Fed is saying is we will be on the other side of that trade to buy the treasuries to alleviate any funding pressures in the repo market. So we'll be there to buy it so that institutions that need to raise cash because of financial stress from the collapse in equity prices, as well as all the other bets that go wrong, credit bets, you know, you name it. You've got people on all the time talking about, you know, hedge funds, trades, and things like that. Um, they need to raise cash. And what they're doing, what the Fed's stepping up and doing is saying, I'm here, to, we're here, we're buying the treasuries from you. You don't have to find private sector buyers. We'll buy them from you to keep the market functioning. Uh, and that's and that's step one, and that is the step to take. And all the other steps about should they get a steeper curve? Because this isn't a good steepening of the curve. So <laughs> a steepening of the curve, uh, and all the other things I've talked about about things to try and get the economy going again and borrowing and to keep lending going, really takes second place to this. Steve Blitz, thank you so much for being with us. Good luck out there. Stay healthy. Steve Blitz, Chief U.S. Economist at T.S. Lombard, uh, joining us on the phone as we all isolate ourselves into our own little pods to prevent <laughs> us all from uh, giving each other's diseases. It is it is really interesting to see uh, the Federal Reserve coming out with this step. And to Steve's point, which I think is a really important one, it does not. the Fed does not want to see the price action that it saw this week in Treasuries, where yields rose simply because because people were selling what they could and they wanted to sell longer dated treasuries because that is a haven asset. And this, to me, is going to put a backstop on that kind of activity, at least, Paul. It is. And it had an immediate impact on the equity markets. Uh, Lisa, we had the Dow up uh, close to 1,000 points here. So, it routed a couple hundred points here on this news, up about 4.6%. Yeah. And taking a look at 30-year treasury yields, which had been higher on the day, now, not surprisingly, lower on the day, uh, 1.41%. We got much more Coming up, Lisa Abramowitz, Paul Sweeney. This is Bloomberg. One of the things that we've clearly learned with this coronavirus, it is a global pandemic affecting all parts uh, of the globe, and that includes uh, the UK and Western Europe. Uh, We have Marion Harkin. She's an independent member of Ireland's parliament joining with us. Uh, She's also a former European Union parliament member representing uh, Ireland. Marion, thanks so much for joining us. You know, as we deal with the effects here and the the growing effects of uh, the coronavirus here in the United States, give us a sense of kind of how it's been in Ireland. I know that Ireland partially shut down schools uh, as the virus outbreak worsens there. Give us a sense of what's happening on the ground in Ireland. 
Well, good morning, Paul. Um, it certainly, we woke up to a different world, a different reality today. Um, I was in the Irish Parliament yesterday and our Prime Minister, our Taoiseach, announced the uh, new regulations actually from Washington and we have completely closed down our schools, our colleges. People are being asked to maintain what they call social distance or social distancing, which is to remain about a metre apart from other people. Uh, hand washing is strongly encouraged on a very regular basis. And the purpose of and all large events have been cancelled. Anything over 100 in an enclosed area or 500 outside. And I have no doubt that maybe even by this evening or tomorrow, that, that will be changed again. I mean, if you look across the EU, for example, um, in Norway, um, they have closed all their pubs. And in Belgium, there are significant restrictions on opening hours for pubs, for restaurants, etc. So there's a whole raft of measures being taken uh, at a pace, shall we say. And the whole purpose, Paul, is to slow down the transmission of the virus because we want our healthcare systems to be able to deal with what happens when somebody catches this virus. And that's the real issue. It's not that we can stop it. We, we can't stop transmission of, of a virus unless we have immunity, and yeah. of course we have none. So it's, it's to make sure, or to try and make sure, that uh, we don't find ourselves uh, in a position that our healthcare systems are completely overwhelmed. Right. Like, for example, as has happened in Italy. Marianne, there's sort of uh, an irony baked into the concept of social distancing right now because we're being told to stay away from each other, and yet there seems to be a greater degree of cooperation among elected officials and central bankers when it comes to trying to formulate some sort of response. And I'm wondering, as an independent member of Ireland's parliament, do you get the feeling as though people are coming together regardless of their political bent or uh, what country they're from? I mean, do you do you get a sense? of unity or, or not really? Oh, absolutely. Uh, there is a real sense we're in it together. You know, it, it's not actually doctors and medicine, certainly in the short term, that, that will help us. It's the actions that we take as individuals. As I said, we, we cannot uh, stop the virus spreading what we can do is slow down the transmission so that healthcare workers, number one, don't have to make awful choices about who they treat and who they don't. And secondly, that they themselves don't get overwhelmed or come down with the disease. So I think people recognise that the only way we can get through this in any shape is that we must uh, as individuals take responsibility and then our governments and our healthcare systems take their responsibilities. But but nobody is immune from this. And I well, think hold people, on a second, though. as this I is... said, have woken up to... A new reality. This is important, and I think that it is true, and people are taking responsibility and schools are closing around the world. 
as a government official, though, there is a responsibility to act on the fiscal side. And, the, and we did get out of the European Union today a plan to uh, to loosen the budgets uh, of a number of different nations in order to allow them to provide the stimulus needed. Germany's government came out and said that it was going to provide unlimited credit. It appears to be ready to abandon its balanced budget credo that it's gone by for a long time. In Ireland, what are you doing? How much is this going to cost? Well, at one level, we were lucky. We had a certain amount of money put aside to deal with the fallout from Brexit. And that, of course, is being completely used up now uh, to start funding some of the measures that we have put in place. It probably won't be enough, but it's a start. So some of the measures that we will be putting in place and have put in place include uh, next week, for example, we will have a sitting of the Parliament where we will put through emergency legislation on those who have to self-isolate or who have to leave work, both employed and self-employed, that they will get a a certain rate of uh, payments that they can continue to live and feed their families. If you work in the public service, you're entitled to sick pay, but otherwise your employer may not be able to pay you. So we are putting in place those emergency measures that nobody will be outside the loop and that people will take the responsible decision to self-isolate without fear of having to say, I have no income, I have no money. And, for example, other measures that have already been taken in the last 24, 48 hours would include all of our police who are in training, at the moment, even those who are only there for uh, a couple of months have all been given full guard the powers yeah. because we need more uh, policemen uh, available. The army is beginning to move in. Uh, certain uh, buildings that have been used for other purposes will now be available if necessary for yeah. uh, medical use. So yeah. a lot of action in the last 24, 48 hours some of it preparatory and some of it uh, pretty immediate. And the good news for workers here is that we will backdate any payments to the 9th of March for people who are sick or who have to self-isolate. Marion Harkin, thank you so much for being with us. Marion Harkin, independent member of Ireland's parliament and former European Union parliament member representing Ireland, uh, joining us to give us a sense of what they're doing to grapple with this. In the United States, the focus very much front and center in Washington, D.C., and what kind of plan is being drafted by Nancy Pelosi and Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin. Uh, they have been discussing all of the details, hashing that out. Meanwhile, the Federal Reserve came out and basically announced uh, a round of quantitative easing. Basically, they're going to be buying uh, treasuries with maturities ranging up to 30 years. We are seeing a rally, although it is off earlier highs. The Nasdaq up 3.2%, the S&P 3%, the Dow 2.7%. This is Bloomberg. take a look at the medical side of coronavirus, in particular, how we track it, how we test for it, and frankly, how close we are to actually curing it or solving it or ameliorating at least the effects. Luckily, we have Max Neeson, Bloomberg Opinion columnist covering all things healthcare, uh, with us today. Max, I want to start with Anthony Fauci, uh, who is the director of the National Institute for Allergy and Infectious Disease. Yesterday, he was testifying in front of Congress, 
And he said he admitted that it was a failing of the U.S. healthcare system that we did not have sufficient testing at the outset. Can you just walk through why we did not have better testing available right away so that we could track and isolate people immediately? So there are, um, you know, any number of reasons or, or failures for this, um, you know, a failure of cooperation between agencies like the CDC and the FDA, a uh, failure to bring in private companies and state labs rapidly enough, a decision at the outset instead of using a WHO developed test, one that's been deployed all over the, the world, we decided to develop our own, which turned out to have problems. The, the, introducing those problems obviously created difficulties and, and slowed the rollout. And beyond that, um, just a, an overall decision by the government for, um, you know, not necessarily the best reasons to restrict uh, deliberately the number of tests that were deployed and developed and, and like the number of people that were tested, limiting it only to people with a direct travel history to China, uh, in spite of the fact that there was, you know, already evidence of spread in other parts of the world. And, you know, the the reality that the earlier, you know, better to over-test than under-test. And we really didn't even get to that, that mindset um, until just a few weeks ago. So failure of leadership, failure of science, failure um, on, on many, many levels has led to this this point. Max, where are we right now in terms of the number of kits we have in this country, how widely dispersed they are right now, how easy is it for somebody to get a test, and and just kind of where are we today, do you think? Unfortunately, all, all that we really have are, are sort of these ad hoc estimates. Um, I'll point people to former FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb, who's been, you know, uh, talking to state labs of the CDC, private companies trying to come up with a reasonable estimate. Um, so we, we really don't have a confirmed number, unfortunately. And um, it, it seems to be the case that, you know, your ability to get tested really depends on where you are. Are you in a state that, that took early steps to, to de, you know, develop its own tests to, to stand up at more capacity than it needed any any given moment. Um, we're still not at a point where everyone who needs to be tested can be, unfortunately, and, and probably won't be for a little bit to come. Uh, although uh, Anthony Fauci did say today that he expects the number of tests to increase dramatically over the upcoming weeks, in part because the U.S. government is partnering with private companies. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So this is basically, you know, looking to companies like LabCorp and, and Quest, um, you know, these sort of brand name companies that have labs all over the country, and um, just basically making sure that they too are, are part of this effort, that, you know, if, if a public lab is overwhelmed, if there isn't one available, uh, send it to these companies, and, and they're finally beginning to to stand up capacity to to get you know validate these tests and, and begin to run them that'll be a, a huge help because they're they're more dispersed um, and and potentially you know quite capable of running a lot of tests you know we're not at the stage where even they are are going to provide all the capacity we need but they will certainly help a lot let's talk about cost max I know you're out with a, a column today really interesting coronavirus crisis makes a case for Medicare for all talk to us about that does that actually have some legs yeah so you know the it's a uniquely american uh, phenomenon that in addition to people worrying about getting coronavirus if they're smart they will also be worried about the cost 
of getting coronavirus. Um, you know, the first step is, is obviously testing. There's been an effort from insurers and from individual states and, and the government to make sure that that, that that people won't be faced with costs. But that's, you know, you actually have to take really aggressive steps to make sure that even testing in a pandemic is not going to cost people thousands of dollars. Uh, and then you get to the stage of, of whether when people actually have a hospital stay, um, you know, a lot of people that don't use their health insurance that often assume that they're protected from unexpected bills. But if you end up with an inpatient hospital stay, you're going to hit your deductible. Um, you're going to potentially face coinsurance. And that will get you to your plan's out-of-pocket maximum, which in many cases is in the thousands of dollars. And that's a financial strain on many companies. And that's the best case scenario. There, there are steps the government can take in an emergency to kind of prevent that from happening, to protect people from costs, uh, still in the works and, and unclear whether they'll be broad enough to help. I'd argue that you might want a system, I mean, this is what I argue my call, where you don't have to take emergency steps to protect people from those costs. Max Neeson, thanks so much for joining us. We always appreciate your perspective on all things healthcare. Max Neeson is a biotech pharma and healthcare columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, uh, joining us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. Thank you, Max. I mean, honestly, yeah, this just, just to me highlights a lot of weak spots. And, you know, there's, there's a question of how much is going to be temporary and how much will this entire episode reshape the way some people think about a variety of different issues. This Medicaid for, or Medicare for All, I think, will be back on the table, certainly for the Democrats, as they think about uh, you know kind of how to position uh, the U.S. Uh, against some of these uh, pandemics. If you're looking to distract yourself by watching a basketball game or a football game or, I mean, even a golf tournament, <laughs> too bad. Forget about it. You're out of luck. They've all been canceled. American sports has been shut down. Scott Sashnick uh, covering it all. Scott Sashnick is a Bloomberg sports columnist joining us here in, uh, in, in New York. And I'm wondering, Scott, how big of a hit is this going to be economically? Well, it depends on what you're all uh, around. If you're Madison Square Garden, you have two teams. It's the arena. It's the network. And you're getting hit on every single part of that business. Uh, you have other theaters as well. If you're Live Nation, you've got nothing. Great company, but yep. no events. You're getting crushed. Um, if you're AEG, an arena operator, you're getting crushed. So uh, it remains to be seen what the contracts with the networks will look like, what the contracts with the players' union will look like, whether they get together and figure out how to help each other out. But they just don't know how long this is going to last. So let's talk about the media rights. That's just the bread and butter of the economics of professional sports. And I'm thinking about ESPN, Fox Sports, CBS with you know the March Madness. How bad is it going to be for these media companies? It's terrible. How bad is it going to be? It's it's terrible, but yep. they have to put something on the air. And ESPN yesterday put out their statement like, we're doing it one day at a time. This is what we've got on the air tonight. That's all. That's as far, I mean, nobody has done this before. So the bread and butter, as you know, why do they pay all these money? It's two words, live, right. Studio shows and what's called shoulder programming, all the things that surround, those are just sort of the appetizers to the feast, which is the live event game. That thing that's been driving OTT and driving those rights fees, they're not there. It's just not there. I'm just uh, thinking back to a Gary Larson cartoon uh, that had a family all around, uh, and it was I'm describing cartoons on radio, <laughs> the best the best kind of radio. Uh, looking at one spot 
on the wall with nothing there and it said <laughs> the world before television and it sort of raises this sort of existential moment yeah. what are people going to do with their time what do you fill the airwaves with if you don't have uh this you know the sports <laughs> yeah i mean well you know if you're turner yes you have a a big portfolio of sport events you do but Turner can show me myriad other things. It's not an all-sports network like ESPN. Turner has a big, it's an ATT, of course. They have a big movie library. You want to show me Shawshank? You want to show me Rudy? People may still tune in for those things. But if you're missing that key component, that, that ardent fan who wants the game, you're in trouble. I mean, just last night, I went down the channel guide. With my son, we're like just going like, nope, that one, nope, nope, nope. <laughs> yep. But it's amazing how many channels are devoted to sports. Yeah, you think about all the regional sports. Yeah, all the RSNs. All the, all the, yes, they, Sinclair is exposed yep, there. Um, Absolutely. What? What? What are the transmission fees? What, what may? And everybody says the same thing. I've talked to all these folks. We don't know. We'll figure it out. Are the players? Do they get paid? No, uh, specifically the NBA. Specifically, after 9-11, a force majeure clause was inserted into the labor contract with the players. That includes things like disasters, but also the word epidemic. I mean, that's a specific term. The NHL has a force majeure clause in the standard player contract, but the word epidemic, that particular does not appear. You know, I'm just struck by how big of a business the uh, athletic leagues right. really are. I mean, it's not just the athletes, it's not just the networks, but it's also all of the gig employees who work around broadcasting all of these uh, events. It's all the people who work on setting up the courts. I mean, it's just, it's a massive industry. Y you have seen some owners, Mark Cuban, immediately right. address those hourly workers. Josh Harris and David Blitzer have also addressed, they will figure out a plan to address compensation for these hourly workers who who just rely on this income. I don't know if every owner will do that, because they certainly don't have to, but at least it was nice to see Mark thinking about it at the outset, that those folks who are not on the front lines, they're not the players, they're not the million-dollar assets, but they are integral to putting on the whole thing. And on the broader scale of pro sports, if people don't think about it, these are real estate investments, they're media investments. These teams are just the centerpiece of all these arms. And a lot of that disappears when the game's not there. So I, are the leagues, are you getting a sense? It seems like most of them are suspending their seasons. Yeah. Some, I guess, like the NCAA, were done with winter and spring sports and th things like that. Are they suspending it, hoping they can salvage something at some point? I guess, you know, it, it depends on which league you are. Cause yeah, well, almost all sports, sports league, Paul, and, and you know this better than most. What does everybody ramp up for? The playoffs. Right? The NBA and the NHL, you want to see the playoffs. That's what matters most. In fact, the joke around NBA circles is the season doesn't even start until Christmas. So you're just washing a couple of months anyway. If, big if, if four weeks from now, six weeks from now, situation improves to a point where they can stage games with fans or without, because let's not forget, the main driver here is always television. You'll give up the gate. If they can put those teams on the court, on the ice and stage a playoffs, they would be happy to do so. Wow. Can you imagine uh, just having everyone wear masks? Yeah, Basketball I don't. I, yeah, exactly. I don't think so. But actually, there was a picture from the 1918 uh, World Series where the uh, batter was actually they were wearing masks at the yeah. game. So I saw that. So maybe 
Maybe you're onto something there, Lisa. Scott's and there was no ESPN then. There was no ESPN. <laughs> Scott Satsashnik, sports business reporter for Bloomberg News, joining us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studio, talking about the business of sport. Check out the Business of Sport podcast with Eben Novi, William Scott Sashnik, and Michael Barr. A new episode is available now at Bloomberg.com and at iTunes. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.